Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I don't know if anybody saw this movie. I haven't seen it, but this came out a couple years ago. The movie Her, which is about a man who falls in love with an operating system in his computer and begins to have this kind of genuine human relationship. Um, maybe more of you are familiar with the movie AI, Artificial Intelligence, from 2001, about a robot boy who begins to develop human feelings and longs for a relationship with his mother, introducing these questions about whether machines can be human and whether humans can be machines. All of this we can file under the broad category of a word called biotechnology. Biotechnology where scientists are using living things to try to make advancements in the care of human beings and life in general. And biotechnology has now introduced a new field of ethics. We are in a sermon series on ethics, how shall we then live? And we have now arrived at today's topic, which is on bioethics. So bioethics is the field of study or consideration in the area of biotechnology where we are considering what is morally right and wrong when it comes to the powers or the abilities that we have to manipulate and control animal and human life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today because as Christians this is an issue that we need to be prepared to interact with and deal with and discuss Given everything that I've told you here today, the question that I really want us to be thinking about is how should we as Christians respond to all of this? Is there a Christian way to think about these things? Do we as believers have anything to say or anything to contribute to this discussion? And I would suggest that we do, and I would suggest that it is very important for us to be anticipating the future when it comes to these kinds of issues. Christians historically have been notorious for being behind the times, trying to catch up with developments in the world. And this is one area where it could become very dangerous if we as Christians are not ready to bring a biblical Christian worldview to bear upon the issue. So that's why we're talking about this today. I will confess this is the sermon I was least looking forward to preaching. Um, it's just a, it's a, such a vast, enormous issue. And so, um, you know, bioethics deals with not just the issues I've mentioned, but other issues like surrogate motherhood and euthanasia and in vitro fertilization. I mean, we could go on and on. I, I'm just not going to address every single one of these issues, but I want to try to give some broad instruction for how we might think through this. So our text today that I think... Um, at least indirectly deals with this, is the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, This passage is not written to explicitly deal with the topics and issues that I've just mentioned, but it is amazing how prophetic this passage is. It's amazing how relevant it really is to to this issue, and I think from this we can draw some some principles about how to think in a God-honoring way with regard to this issue. So please stand for the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This is right after um, the flood, which uh, took place in Genesis 
6, 7, 8, and 9. God has given instructions to Noah and his descendants. We have a list of Noah's descendants at the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, and now we find ourselves in chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there among the face, over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Lord in heaven, would you please by your spirit open our eyes to behold wonderful, truthful things in your word as you speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, three things that I want to point out to you from this text as we consider this issue of, of bioethics or, or biotechnology or as we think about advances in technology and the, the progress that is made in our culture and in our civilization. Uh, so just by way of kind of context, I, I want to make this point because I think it's very important to understand. And it's this, it's that God has given technology to us for good. That technology in itself is a good thing. When, when we hear the things that we've heard today, the examples and the issues that I've shared with you, it would be wise for us not to respond by immediately commending them all, because they seem really cool and exciting. <laughs> but nor would it be wise to immediately condemn everything that I've talked about, because it might seem a little strange or new or, or different. Uh, we need to be careful and to think carefully about these things. And so... This point will help us think through this. Technology is in itself a good thing. Um, for instance, this passage in Genesis 1.28 that we've heard quite a bit in this ethics series, this is called the creation mandate where God blesses Adam and Eve and he says to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. So we get this command repeatedly in Genesis to the human race to take what God has made and to cultivate it and to expand upon it, to take the raw materials of the created order and to shape them in such a way that they produce maximum benefit for the glory of God and the benefit of the human race. That is what the creation mandate is all about. And it's given not just to Christians, not just to Israel, not just to um, the church. It's given to the entire human race. This is the job description for the human race, to go about this matter of cultivating creation. And technology is really just a means by which this is done. Technology is a means by which the creation mandate is fulfilled. 
If you go back to Genesis 4, don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 4, we see examples of how this is taking place. In verse 17, we see a city is being built. In verse 20, we see the development of agriculture. In verse 21, we see the development of musical instruments, and so the arts begin to develop. And in verse 22, we see that tools are being made. All this in Genesis chapter 4. These are all examples of how God's creatures are fulfilling the creation mandate. And now we get to Genesis chapter 11, and we see something similar. We see the use of raw materials here, right? Verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, and let's burn them. Then they had bricks, which made stone, and they had bitumen, which led to mortar, And they took these raw materials and they began, in verse 4, to build a city and to make a tower. So it's important to see that as far as this goes so far here, that there is nothing wrong going on here. This is God's creatures fulfilling the creation mandate, building a tower, building a city. It's interesting if you go back to chapter 9, verse 1, after the flood. It's the first thing that God says to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God repeats it to Noah. He says, get back to work with what I originally commanded the human race to do. This is a good thing. And biotechnology can be a good thing. We hear some of these things and we get scared, but by the grace of God, he is gifted and equipped researchers and scientists and doctors to make great progress in seeking to heal diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, in working on correcting spinal injuries, on helping couples who are infertile, in developing prosthetic limbs for people who have lost limbs or born without limbs. These are wonderful blessings from God. These are good things. What a blessing it is that we live in this day and age when we can take advantage of these kinds of medical advances. We should rejoice and give God the thanks for this. I preached a sermon a couple years ago, I think, on technology and made some of these similar points. But there is something that's called a Luddite, L-U-D-D-I-T-E, a Luddite. And a Luddite is one who is constantly fearful and opposed to all technological change. So I suppose the the Amish would be kind of the classic Luddites, avoiding all technological advancements. Being a Luddite is not biblical. It's, It's not, as a Christian, we don't have to embrace that. There's nothing godly about trying to hold back technological advancement. And I think we see that here in the early chapters of Genesis. So let, let me just offer up a challenge here, particularly since we have <clears throat> a number of young people in our congregation and college students. As you're thinking about what you might do with your life and what you might study and the degree that you might get and the career you might choose, maybe God is calling you to be a, a pastor or, or a missionary or something like that, which would be wonderful and good. But I want to ask you today if God might be calling you to enter into the field of biotechnology. Could it be that God is calling you to be a medical scientist or a biochemist or a microbiologist? 
I hope none of you thinks that there is something less spiritual about that than the other ministry opportunities that I mentioned. If God is calling you to those things, I want to tell you there is a dire need for Christians to be working in those fields. One of the reasons that there is concern about where all this is going to go is because it's in the control of a lot of people who don't have a biblical worldview. We need Christians involved. We need believers who want to bring their worldview to bear upon this particular discipline. C.S. Lewis um, addressed this, and I've, I've shared this before, but it's just so, so good. Oh, that's Tim Challies. We're going to skip Tim. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, what we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent, with their Christianity influencing and directing and guiding everything that they're saying and thinking. It is not the books written in direct defense of materialism. By materialism there, he doesn't mean going to the mall and spending a lot of money. He, he means the idea that the material world is all that exists. He means kind of an atheistic worldview. It's not the books written in direct defense of materialism that make the modern man a materialist. That's not what really ends up convincing him. It's the materialistic assumptions in all the other books that he's reading that just come through in the implications. In the same way, it's not the books on Christianity that will really trouble him, the materialist, the unbeliever, but he would be troubled if whenever he wanted a cheap popular introduction to some science or to biotechnology or to cloning or to in vitro fertilization, the best work on the market was always by a Christian. That's what's going to make a big difference as the Christian worldview seeps through all of these kinds of disciplines, particularly those that are at the forefront of our culture like this one. So God has given us technology for good. But then secondly, and in contrast to that, humans can use technology for bad. We all know that, that's stating the obvious, but that is what we're seeing here in chapter 11. Building a tower in a city, not a bad thing. But as we go on, we see at least a couple things that suggest to us something very bad is actually going on here in Genesis chapter 11. First of all, verse 4. Oh, we see both of these in verse 4. Um, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, remember the creation mandate that I just showed you from Genesis 1.28, where God was very clear about saying you need to fill the earth? What he's saying, you need to disperse among the earth. That's what I want the human race to do, to fill the earth. And here, humanity is saying, God, we're not going to do that. We don't want to be dispersed. We're going to build our tower and we're going to stay right here. And so we see an evidence of rebellion, disobedience here in these people. But perhaps more um, foreboding is what is said earlier in this verse. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's what this whole Tower of Babel is about. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We are going to make humanity great. We are going to exalt almighty man and woman. That's 
the motivation here. Do you remember at the very beginning of this sermon series, I did like an introductory sermon on ethics, and I said that one of the main components of a good deed is that it must be done for the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What we're seeing here is the exact opposite of that. Uh, opposite of that. This tower is not being built for God's glory. It's being built for man's glory. It's a kind of technological rebellion where these individuals building the tower are defying the rule of heaven. They are transgressing God's sacred place in heaven. They're using human technology, a good thing, to displace God, a very bad thing. That's, that's the problem here. And we have seen this all the way back into the garden where we get this picture of Adam and Eve. They're wanting to displace God. They want to be like God. This is something that all of us are dealing with. In our hearts, there's something in us that wants to push God away and exalt and magnify ourselves. It's the essence of rebellion against God and the essence of the cause of the fall. And we see it stated even explicitly today among some modern writers, Arthur C. Clarke, science fiction writer, it may be that our role on this planet is not to worship God, but to create Him. That, that's the spirit of Babel right there. A guy named uh, Stuart Brand, another <clears throat> scientific writer. We are as God, so we might as well get good at it. For a lot of people, that's what biotechnology is all about, getting good at being like God displacing him from his throne. So God here is showing some concern as he notices this. Do you see this in verse 6? The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they're going to do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So what God is noticing here is that a self-confident, defiant humanity with technology in its hands can do great damage. And God points this out. And, and here I think we see what is a very important principle that we need to be remembering as we approach this area of biotechnology and advances in medical technology. And that is that God has given certain boundaries that humanity is not to cross. That just because we are able to do something, just because we have the ability now to do something, doesn't necessarily mean that we should do it. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. That's very important to remember. And I think outside of a Christian worldview, I'm not sure that that view is always there. See, if we can do it, then let's go for it. And there are dangerous implications that can come from that. I mean, an example of this is just going back to the garden again. Remember, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, put Adam and Eve in that garden, and told Adam and Eve, don't touch that tree. <laughs> you know, we get the idea that God was intending that they would just live blissfully and happily there forever with humanity not being able to do something. Something would be off limits for them. That tree, don't touch it. But Adam and Eve looked at it, and it looked good to them. Seems good. What's the harm? And they ate from the tree, and we know the dreadful results. 
And we have a warning here in Proverbs. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. That is a sobering warning to keep in mind as we think about advances in biotechnology. There is great danger in grasping at what is not ours to have. There's great danger when godlike powers fall into the hands of sinful people. And here we are for the first time in history where humanity is able to do things that in the past have been the prerogative of God only. Like we're entering into a phase where we can create life, where we can alter creation in a way that formerly was only reserved for God. This is not just a concern, friends, of Christians or myself as a pastor here. Uh, here's Scientific American magazine. It is proving impossible for nature to keep up with the rapidly increasing pace of our technology, which could soon produce a viable artificial intelligence. We could soon find ourselves at the mercy of vastly smarter ethics-free machines. Ethics-free machines. That means machines that don't care what they do to you <laughs> or to the human race. Stephen Hawking, the most, probably the world's most famous scientist, the development of, artif of uh, full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. I share these with you just so you don't think I'm just some overreacting Luddite Christian. <laughs> that there is concern about advances that are taking place in this area. Uh, and now here is where you know, we could go on for a long time talking about different examples, but I'm just going to use one. How about cloning, for example? As we think about cloning individuals, what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, what, what, what do you think it would do to a person who was cloned and had to live his or her entire life knowing that the reason that he or she was created was just to be like somebody else. The reason you exist is to bring back the good memories that we had about so-and-so. What, what, what is that going to do to a person? Is that going to be easy to live with? Doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't do it, but it's something we ought to think about. More dangerously, though, what about... What would have happened in Nazi Germany if when Hitler was in power, they had access to the abilities to clone? What if they had decided to clone a bunch of Adolf Hitlers? It, you know, this is when this kind of technology falls into the hands of the wrong people. Horrible things, horrible things can happen. And it's interesting to note that Germany is one of the first, might be the first nation, at least one of the first nations to ban cloning in 1990, and other European nations, European nations have followed. It's like Europe is kind of leading the way. You know, Europe, this kind of very liberal area, you know, very much non-Christian these days, and yet leading the charge and being a lot more conservative with regard to biotechnology. So there, there's a threat here that we need to be concerned about, but I, I wanna, as we leave this point, to assure you though, that our God is not threatened by these developments, okay? We, we might be threatened and a little scared, God is not. 
And we see that in verse 5 because there's a little bit of irony in this verse. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had, had built. It's like here's humanity building this tower in their proud defiance. They're going to reach up to heaven. But in order to even see the tower, God's got to come down to look at it. This puny, tiny little thing. God's not intimidated. And we see this later in Isaiah 14 where God is saying to Babylon, the city of Babylon, which gets its name from Babel, and Babylon is a symbol of defiance against God. God says this, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, just like in Babel. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. It's God's way of saying, you are no match for me sinful humanity. So even though humans can use technology for bad, God is in control and will not be displaced. One last thing, the gospel gives us clarity about how we should use or think about technology. We get clarity and I think further illumination as we think about the gospel. The story ends here with God <clears throat> confusing the language of the people. In verse 7, uh, he comes down to confuse their language. And then in verse 8, he ends up dispersing them from over the face of all the earth. That's repeated again in verse 9. The Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. You see how God gets what he wants. He wanted them to disperse. They didn't want to. God said, yes, you are. And they did. So this is how the language or the story ends, but we see in verse 9 that God assigns this word to the city, Babel. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. That's, that's basically what Babel means, confusion. This is the tower of confusion. This is a mark of, of confused sinful man thinking that he's got to build his way to God with a tower, rather than realizing that God has come down out of heaven to us in the person of his son to save us, that he saves us, we don't save ourselves. Resulting from this is confusion about what is right and what is wrong. And don't we see that in our culture today and in our nation? Don't you just notice constant confusion? We don't even know what it is to be human. That question is being asked. There are considerations of animals being just as dignified as humans. This is a question that we're wrestling with. This is a confusion that we're finding ourselves facing. And so to kind of work through the confusion, I want to give you three things here. Three very basic um, doctrinal points related to the gospel that'll help us get some clarity here. The first thing is this, you've been hearing me talk about this through this series as well, the image of God, the fact that everyone is created in the image of God. That applies to the elderly person in the nursing home who can't remember her name, all the way down to the embryo who has been frozen for the purpose of in vitro fertilization down the road somewhere. And you know that there are thousands of frozen embryos that are being held now for, for couples to use. 
I would refer you back to the abortion sermon a few weeks ago when I made the point that human life begins at conception. We believe that embryos are human beings, that infants in the womb bear the image of God, and those frozen embryos bear the image of God as well. That's a crucial ethical issue for us to deal with. Many embryos that are not regarded as being genetically preferable are destroyed and cast out. But this fact is one we need to bring to bear on this situation. Everybody created in the image of God. This is one of the most helpful things I think I've read uh, with regard to this whole issue by a guy named Nigel Cameron. He said, taking life in God's image might not be worse than making life in our image. There might be an equivalent moral issue with both of those. Second thing, the value of suffering. As Christians, we don't seek suffering. We don't go after it. We don't celebrate it, but we also don't avoid it at all costs. And one of the main uh, goals of the transhumanist movement is to eliminate suffering. And certainly to a degree, we want to join with them in eliminating suffering. But we also know that the Bible speaks highly of the value of suffering. Like in Romans 5, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God uses suffering to do good things in our lives that is not to be avoided at all costs. And the third thing is deliverance from death. These three things we need to keep at the forefront as we explore this issue. And this last one, deliverance from death. Because here is what, as I've been reading and considering the claims of the transhumanists and others in this area, that what they want so badly is to live. They don't want to die. That's really at the root of of this whole thing. We don't want to to deal with the consequences of aging. We don't want to deal with the consequences of the fall. We don't want to leave this earth. We don't want to leave our loved ones. We want to try to create a perfect state of affairs on this earth. And that's a good longing. That's one that all of us can identify with. But it's a longing that is only satisfied in the gospel. Our gospel has an answer to the cries of the transhumanists. Our gospel says that it is possible to live forever. That it is possible to have a perfected body. And in fact, that is promised to all who trust in Jesus the one who died on a cross and is risen from the dead in his glorious resurrected body and now promises that all who trust in him will one day receive the same. Hebrews 2 makes it very clear. Jesus partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the transhumanist movement. They're, they're, they're subject to the fear of death. And they're scrambling to find a way to get out from under it. And as Christians, we know what the answer is. Jesus 
the crucified Savior who now lives and will never die. And he offers that life to you, not just to the transhumanist, but to you today, right now, at this moment. You can trust in Christ and have this promise of eternal life. And we'll be hearing more about that as we come to the Lord's Supper. It's appropriate that we're doing the Lord's Supper today. So musicians, if you want to come forward, please. Um, let me close by just mentioning that, uh, you know, what happened here to, to Babel in the end it's interesting that in verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. They, they quit. <laughs> the city wasn't built. The city that sinful humanity sought to build up toward God wasn't finished. But here's a really wonderful thing. You go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and you know what you find? A heavenly city coming down out of heaven to earth. Not a rebellious city going up from earth to heaven. A gracious, glorious city coming down out of heaven to take its place on the earth. That is the golden age that all of us are looking for, that all of us are longing for. When Jesus comes again, he's going to bring history to a close. And the promise in Revelation is that there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more Alzheimer's. No more need for prosthetic limbs. No more Parkinson's disease. Every tear will be wiped away. And this Jesus, this great Savior, who makes beautiful things out of this earth, will live with us forever. That's the longing of the biotechnologist and the promise that is certain in the gospel of the Son that we worship. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for hope in the gospel, hope for our greatest fears, assurances that life has overcome death, that you, Jesus, have overcome the grave. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask for guidance as we seek as your people to navigate these issues in wisdom and in truth for your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray.